This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, sitting in for Josh King, here's Jeff Smith. Thanks for joining us this week as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on the POTUS channel. Hi, I'm Jeff Smith, urban policy professor at the New School and former Missouri State Senator sitting in for Josh King. This week was a slow news week for most of the country, but not for New York City. While most Americans recovered from shopping hangovers, made New Year's resolutions, and bought gym memberships that they'll use for at least the next week, New Yorkers inaugurated new Mayor Bill de Blasio, who promised transformational change after 12 years of Mike Bloomberg's leadership. And since we New Yorkers think we're the center of the universe anyway, we thought it was a good time to look inward here at Polyoptics to reflect on the formidable Bloomberg legacy and the expansive de Blasio vision. Of course, neither of these two men is exactly a parochial fellow. Bloomberg, he of the 30-plus billion dollar net worth, helped spearhead changes to the city's educational and policing systems that were adopted across the nation, and his ideas on public health and environmental protection were adopted around the globe. de Blasio, no stranger to national politics as a former aide to Hillary Clinton, President Bill Clinton, and John Edwards, campaigned stridently in favor of ameliorating income inequality. His landslide victory was heralded by progressives nationally as a harbinger of liberal revival. And so this week, we'll be comparing and contrasting the Bloomberg and de Blasio visions and digging into their implications both for New York and for the nation with two of our city's savviest political observers. First, we're joined by Andrew White, director of the New School's Center for New York City Affairs, who also happens to be my friend and colleague. Welcome to Polyoptics, Andrew. Thank you for having me. We're also fortunate to welcome Morgan Pem, editor of City and State, a leading publication chronicling New York politics and policy. Morgan, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. Before we begin, a special thanks to both of our guests who braved nearly a foot of snow overnight to make it here this morning, which leads me to my first question. Um, Previous mayors have received a hail of attacks for their handling of snowstorms. Most recently, we saw in 2010, I believe, Bloomberg was pilloried for being on the golf course in Bermuda uh, during the run-up to the 2010 blizzard that dumped nearly two feet of snow and led to major transportation delays uh, and unplowed streets throughout the boroughs. Is this new mayor Bill de Blasio's first real management challenge, Morgan? Um, Well, it's certainly been uh, portrayed as such. I mean, Bill de Blasio would have to have been pretty incompetent uh, to mess this up, right? Knowing how high the stakes were and the expectations. If if he were to have gone to sleep on the job here, then that, you know, certainly John Lindsay was sunk right out of the box by not dealing with the, the snow when he was elected. But, um, you know, when when Mayor uh, Bloomberg had that had that debacle, it was kind of uh, in during a part of his third term when he had checked out for a bit before he took interest again in the city. Uh, so, you know, de Blasio knew very much what was on the line here. And I am certain that we will have plowed streets. Yeah. And- when these things happen, it's because they sneak up. And I think it's uh, I mean, when things go wrong with snow, it's because they sneak up on the mayor. Bloomberg was was often Bermuda. It sort of epitomized much of the criticism of the man. 
Though the funny thing with this one is this is actually the Bloomberg administration in action still today. <laughs> because I mean, it's entirely, on, yeah. the, the three commissioners, I think, who are in charge of, of these things are all going to be Bloomberg commissioners, at least for the first few months here. Exactly. That's right. I mean, de Blasio has uh, appointed a surprisingly few people to his administration so far compared with prior mayors. And so a lot of the people in uh, at the helm right now are still uh, Bloomberg appointees. So I want to talk uh, today both about Bloomberg and de Blasio, but why don't we start by analyzing what some of Bloomberg's successes and some of his failures have been. Andrew, why don't you get us started? So, uh, you know, big picture, I think Bloomberg, I've, 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 many people have heard me say, I think Bloomberg's the best mayor we've had in New York for a long, long time. I mean, at least since I moved here and the mid 80s. And Andrew, you're someone who comes out of, you know, the progressive movement. Yeah. You've been an, an advocate, a journalist, um, and someone who's been influential on New York City policy processes rooted in kind of left wing right. politics. Right. And Not yet, the person you'd expect to be in the tank for Bloomberg. Right? Exactly. And exactly. so I have a lot of caveats to put around the statement I just made about Bloomberg and in particular his third term, which um, I think left a lot of people behind. But you know, he appointed, he took a strategy for governing and for creating an administration that was pretty much a meritocracy. There was not a lot of cronyism going on in his selection of people to run agencies, to staff the, the sort of political appointee level of agencies and of City Hall. And he allowed creative people to do their thing. And in some of these departments, you saw very remarkable, um, sort of innovative, positive, very liberal, very progressive achievements. So, the Give one, us an example or two. Well, one of the ones most noted is Department of Transportation. Department of Transportation. It's a small agency, but they managed to put in bike lanes, do a lot of traffic calming, create a lot of pedestrian plazas, really change the face of transportation, sort of the presence of autos in New York City. It's very different from what it was 12 years ago. Um, in Department of Juvenile Justice, that department no longer exists. It's basically become irrelevant. It's folded into the Children's Services Agency. The whole approach to juvenile justice has, has changed. We're no longer sending kids upstate to incarceration facilities. Um, I mean, you could go down the list. Same thing in corrections, same thing in probation. Yeah, I've worked with Vinnie Chiraldi, the commissioner of probation, who I think is, yep. has transformed the mentality of the department away from being punitive and trying to violate right. ex-offenders right. towards being really positive and trying to work with ex-offenders to see how they can better succeed. So I think there's really been a shift in mentality in at least a few of these agencies. Yeah, and you can in, in most of them, there's been a shift in mentality. Some of the, the creative, innovative strategies uh, had problems attached to them, and we can get to that later. But for the most part, this was a liberal mayor who came in as a strong defender of the role of government in um, people's lives and in society and in strengthening the city. People tend to forget that one of the first things he did was a massive tax increase <laughs> to support the services that were being devastated by the recession that hit in 2000 and the economic um, damage wrought by the terrorist attacks in 2001. And he you know, he increased property taxes 18%. He participated in raising income taxes on people earning more than $250,000. And that money stabilized the social welfare system in New York City. So for his first term, it was, and even on to the second term, it was a 
pretty impressive example of how liberal progressive ideals can mesh with a business sensibility to provide an effective government for New York. Thanks, Andrew. Morgan, give us your take. Well, uh, City and State recently asked um, 13 leading academics and historians in New York State to rank the greatest mayors in New York City history. And I was very surprised that Mayor Bloomberg came in second, and this was in the final days of his uh, third term. Uh, because generally people do not get recognition during their lifetimes, right? I mean, we always hear of the the Van Goghs, right? The people who are brilliant in their times and no one appreciates them. Uh, and there is this, I don't know, this, uh, this, this part of human nature that we want to deny people their, their, uh, their druthers yeah. uh, in, in, in the moment. And, uh, you know, these are people who are extremely well respected in the field, who know the mayoralty better than anybody, people like Andrew White. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, who, who across the board uh, really acclaimed Mayor Bloomberg as a great mayor. Uh, and, and, I mean, this, this, he was a transformational figure for New York City. I mean, like Robert Moses is very much the father of modern New York. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Mayor Bloomberg is the second father. I mean, if you see the New York skyline, every neighborhood has been terraformed. I mean, this is for good or for bad. We have ex- experienced unprecedented uh, or maybe precedented for the second time change uh, in, in our history. And that has been extraordinary. And what Andrew was saying about um, the the faith that he put in his commissioners and his uh, attracting very creative, bold thinkers to to the job of, of commissioners is absolutely true. I mean, he had extraordinary cabinet uh, throughout his three terms. I mean, even, you know, generally there's a drop off as you get uh, deeper into an administration. But you know, and in, in the in the third term, he attracted uh, Kaz Holloway to be the deputy mayor of operations, which is absolutely extraordinary public servant. And I think did a phenomenal job. Uh, and uh, you know, Mayor Bloomberg had a great advantage. His personal wealth uh, was an incentive for people to work beside him because they knew that there were opportunities beyond the administration. As you see that a lot of his leading commissioners are now joining this uh, this Bloomberg Consulting Company and uh, and Dan Doktorov, who was a, a leading figure in the early part of the administration, ended up being you know the, the head of Bloomberg LP. So they have been remunerated handsomely for their for putting their efforts into uh, into the Bloomberg administration. Um, but it, it has had extraordinary results. And we, we did a, a retrospective where we asked leading figures in the Bloomberg administration to just reflect upon their time with uh, the mayor. And again and again, they said that he was willing to take chances on bold ideas, that he, as a manager, um, would take would back people up. So, you know, he, he was willing to, to bear the political brunt of things going awry or not working out immediately, which we know is is so rare in politics, right? Where we need to see immediate results or someone's uh, or heads roll. Uh, and because Mayor Bloomberg was on this other plateau in in all in his personal life and in his business life, uh, he felt that he had um, the standing to to kind of tough it out and and make some hard decisions that would not otherwise be politically expedient. Andrew. You mentioned that you had some caveats. Yeah. Well, I think at the same time that you talk about um, this hands-off management style and this trusting his commissioners, trusting his staff, 
that has a downside as well. And the police department is probably um, the most controversial or one of the two most controversial. The other is really city planning and development. Um, I'd say education has been... Well, education, is, yeah, you're right, except that's a whole other story, which I expect we'll get to as well. But so the police department was Ray Kelly's shop. Nobody in City Hall told Ray Kelly what to do. It was his operation, and he was very successful and very popular. The, f- the flaw was in the very slow reaction to the controversy around stop and frisk. And we first heard about sort of... Um, young black men being stopped relentlessly back in the Giuliani years. It it stopped for a while. In the years after 9-11, the cops had other things to do, other things to deal with. The numbers of arrests went down, the number of uh, sort of the attention in those neighborhoods, particularly um, just the stop and frisk type of attention went down for the first few years of the Bloomberg term. But but by the end of the second term, it was way back up. And if you lived in a housing project and you were a long, young black man, you were stopped regularly and frisked and questioned and that got to a point where people were fed up we did interviews in one of my research projects with older people in um in housing projects who were really fed up with the way their children were being treated and these are people who want the police in their in their developments so they could have responded more quickly they fought back they pretended it wasn't an issue even as hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people were being stopped. And arrests were pretty, sort of, you know, very high, considering that the numbers of people actually going into felony prosecutions were very low. So, And then Bloomberg, I know, admirably put forth, I think, $130 million of his own money towards mm-hmm. this young men's initiative to deal with young black and Latino men right. who had been struggling, many of whom had been involved in the criminal justice system. Cynics, of course, pointed out that many of these people got involved in the system the first time mm-hmm. because of stop-and-frisk policies. Yeah, I mean, and and the Young Men's Initiative is great. There's There are elements of it that are fantastic. There's elements of the anti-poverty strategy that was managed out of City Hall under Linda Gibbs, the deputy mayor, that have had a lasting impact, some of which actually are now passed into law by the, by the city council, such as the new poverty measure, which is revolutionary for the United States to have a poverty measure that actually takes into account people's um, housing subsidies and their income from earned income tax credit and food stamps. And I mean, you'd think that would be an obvious element of how we measure poverty, but the federal poverty measure doesn't do that. So that's a Bloomberg innovation. But getting back to the police thing, I mean, it took them a couple of years past what it needed, what it should have to respond and ratchet down their sort of occupational, pre- their presence as an occupying force in some neighborhoods. And what, and what Andrew's kind of getting at is the true flip side of the Bloomberg administration, which was a, a, a pronounced arrogance yeah. uh, that, you know, an unwillingness to uh, admit wrongdoing or mistakes, uh, an obstinacy at times to continue upon a, a course once it has been set. And, uh, you know, that that is something that was, uh, you know, so manifest in the the push for the third term. You know, Mayor Bloomberg had said from the outset and from the outset when he was a candidate that he was a strong supporter of term limits. And then, you know, when it became in his interest to 
use his his money and his influence to upend the system and to uh, prolong his term. He he used all the resources at his disposal to do so, and he did so, you know, uh, rather effectively in a way that no one else could have done so. Um, it's the same thing with um, you know with the policing and with the education policy. Uh, there was, you know, the hardest thing for politicians to do is to uh, admit mistakes. I mean, they're they're probably you can probably count on your hands, uh, you know, on your on your two hands the number of times when uh, that has been admitted to when it didn't involve like some sort of sex scandal. Yeah, right? and corporate CEOs yeah, the yeah, same, and Bloomberg's yeah. both of those. <laughs> yeah, and so you know that that was you know that that is the the unfortunate flip side of the Bloomberg administration, but. You know that 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 was also what enabled him to achieve so many so many great things. You know, and on the, I wouldn't. We have to remember also that uh, Kelly was very successful in terms of crime in New York City, and it wasn't just Kelly. There were all kinds of other things going on in New York for the last fifteen years as we've seen crime decline. Well, really, now it's been about twenty twenty two years that crime has been declining. Uh, Ray Kelly deserves a lot of credit for a lot of good work. The other area that was very controversial was development and this is an area that Bloomberg very much cared about I mean he went in really early trying to sort of depicting himself as the new Robert Moses he I remember him going up in front of Abney Association for the Better New York back in 2002 talking about all the great development programs development plans he had for New York and he stuck to some of those way beyond the rational um, you know way beyond reason there was the West Side Stadium that in retrospect, you know, there was no way Shelley Silver was ever going to support that thing. And it was going and going. Shelley Silver's the state, uh, the head of the state assembly who had to sign off on this deal. And Bloomberg and Doctoroff just pushed it and pushed it and pushed it. They didn't get that. But what they did get was luxury development on a scale never before seen in New York. Huge, huge number of new luxury apartment buildings in New York and that has been sort of emblematic that's sort of what de Blasio has captured as a image of the late late Bloomberg years and the tale of the two cities of yeah. course because the flip side of that coin you know on one side as you said this has become New York City has become the luxury city the first choice for billionaires across the world uh, to come and buy 60, 70, 80 million dollar penthouses. But the other side of that coin, of course, is that New York isn't affordable anymore for an average middle class family. Um, what can actually be done about this? Uh, as people in rent stabilized units are dying off and units are converted to market rate, mm -hmm. are all middle class people going to be priced not just out of Manhattan, but out of Brooklyn soon and maybe other boroughs as well? Morgan. Well, I mean, God, I wish I knew the answer to that question, right? I could be the mayor. Mm -hmm. um, but I, what I think that Mayor de Blasio's strategy is, is to continue to encourage development, uh, but that there will be a caveat, and that will be that new development will have to come with uh, an affordable housing component, you know? So if you're, you can build, instead of building your 30-foot, uh, your 30-story skyscraper. We're going to let you build a 50-story skyscraper. But you know what? In exchange for those extra 20 floors, we want 10 of those floors to be affordable housing. Uh, I think that that is kind of uh, at the crux of the way that the, the, the de Blasio administration is going to try to um, you know, bring about more affordable housing in the city. And it'll be interesting to see if that can be done. I mean, we've seen 
examples of that, um, you know, like the the Atlantic Yards project in Brooklyn, which really transformed downtown Brooklyn. You know, the exchange there was, okay, you can build the stadium, you can build these, you know, all these buildings, but you have to build affordable housing. And to date, we really haven't seen, it's always the affordable housing component that seems to be built last, if at all. And so, you know, it's, it's really getting the developers to be accountable for that, to see the efficacy of that type of approach. Uh, de Blasio was pretty unequivocal yesterday and in, in his inaugural speech, uh, I guess two days ago now, in his inaugural speech about the types of changes that he hoped to see. Let's take a moment and listen uh, to an excerpt from that speech. So let me be clear. When I said I would take dead aim at the tail of two cities, I meant it. <laughs> And we will do it. I will honor the faith and the trust you have placed in me. And we will give life to the hope of so many in our city. We will succeed as one city. And we know this won't be easy. It will require all that we can muster. And it won't be accomplished only by me. It will be accomplished by all of us. Those of us here today and millions of everyday New Yorkers in every corner of our city. You must continue to make your voices heard. You must be at the center of this debate. And our work begins now. So Andrew, what were your thoughts on the tone of the inaugural? Ah, the tone of the inaugural. I think de Blasio and, and Clinton were great. They gave credit where credit was due to the Bloomberg administration, which is the point of uh, debate right now. Um, I think um, they, they, you know, I think de Blasio laid out his vision and it was pretty much building on what he has proposed straight out from the beginning of his campaign. Um, a lot of the criticism, including from the New York Times editorial board, has been about other speakers, in particular the public advocate and Harry Belafonte, who laid into the prior mayor, the departing mayor, and the question of whether that's the appropriate place, the appropriate time to do that. Um, you know, reality to me, I think this will blow over pretty quickly. It's, uh, it's the de Blasio administration. It's not the Tish James administration. Yeah, um, you know, it it, it was. I, I thought the the most striking part of uh, Bill De Blasio's speech was when he was saying, you know, what I said on the campaign trail was not just political rhetoric. That I am going to, you know, to live up to uh, what I had said, and I thought that that was a a very bold and and good way of of tackling head on some of the criticisms and misgivings that people have had about De Blasio coming into office. Is this going to be you know, uh, much ado about nothing instead of a tale of two cities. Uh, and, uh, you know, the fact that he addressed that criticism so forthrightly, um, I thought was very admirable. Yeah. So let's think a little bit about the differences between de Blasio's management style thus far and what people know of him uh, in the public advocate's office and as a campaign operative versus Bloomberg style. Bloomberg, clearly, as you mentioned, more corporate, autocratic, whereas de Blasio is seen as more of a collaborator and conciliator. 
Is it possible to run this city of nearly 9 million people uh, as a collaborator and conciliator? Or are some of those qualities that Bloomberg brought to the office almost a necessity? Andrew. I don't know how much de Blasio really is a collaborator when it comes to actually running government. We'll see. If you look back at the history of mayoralties, I think the, the, the thing that set Bloomberg off as different was the idea of hiring really good people for the job and trying to let them do it. Sometimes those really good people ended up doing things that not everybody liked, but the reality is it was not about cronyism. When people criticize Bloomberg for cronyism, it's after the fact. It's where people go after they leave government. Um, Giuliani was certainly not a collaborator. Koch, you wouldn't describe as a collaborator. I don't imagine anybody in government is going to change the way, the fundamental nature of of an administration. You've got to have, you've got to manage things. You can't sit around and wait for consensus. I, I think it's an illusion to think that that's what de Blasio is going to be doing. Morgan? Uh, if, if he does take that approach, I think it would be disastrous. I mean, our city has, our, our, the history of our city is autocratic mayors. I mean, you look at someone like Ed Koch. I mean, he could not have been a more, you know, autocratic person than he was. I spent a lot of time with with Ed, uh, you know, in his final years. And, uh, you know, it's, it, I think that New York, we gravitate to strong personalities. We want someone who is going to take the bull by the horns and lead the city. I think if you're wishy-washy about it, you'll lose the respect of New Yorkers. Uh, but I agree with Andrew. I mean, I, I don't think that uh, Mayor de Blasio has, has come in to, you know, make this some sort of kumbaya moment and everyone's going to get to say, have their say in how the government's going to run. I mean, he has articulated a strong vision and he is going to do his utmost to implement it. He has already shown through bigfooting the the selection process for the the speaker of the city council that he intends to be very engaged in setting the agenda for the city. Uh, he basically has handpicked the next speaker of the city council. Some people have said that's running roughshod over the checks and balances that are uh, you know are fundamental to the way that our city is set up. Uh, but he did so nonetheless, and he said, I need to have my person in there. Um, so he, he has certainly uh, shown that he is he is not unwilling to, to take on tough fights already uh, so far. I think the real issue for style is going to be policy, and the real change in style is going to be in policy. And if de Blasio is going to hold true to his agenda... We should go back to what we were talking about before. How do you deal with this tale of two cities question? And So how do you deal with it? I mean, this is a city that has been right. disproportionately reliant upon the financial industry yeah. for a long, long time. And I think Bloomberg went a long way towards trying to change that and making this more of a technology hub, uh, which, you know, the new Roosevelt Island campus right. and then doing everything he could to attract businesses like Google, you know, to come and, and locate a lot of their workers here. What else can a mayor do to try to make this one city instead of the sort of two cities that uh, that we've seen it? Well, this is a, it's a boom town right now. You know, this New York made it through the 2008 uh, crisis, fiscal crisis, 2007, whatever it was, 2008, 2009, and and got out of a recession far before the rest of the country. And it is the real estate sector is booming like never before. How do you harness that? more effectively than we have. Bloomberg, 
to his credit, he grew the tax base of this town. We have a city budget that's now $70 billion. It was $40 billion when he came into office. That's a massive increase. That's because he was able to increase the tax base substantially. That tax base was largely through prop increase in property taxes, but also big increase in sales taxes, a huge increase in tourism to New York, um, rising incomes on at the upper level that generate a lot of revenue. When it comes to development, uh, developers are making a killing right now. How do you harness more of that to do um, more work that will create affordable housing? How do you find ways to increase wages? The only way you're going to address poverty across the board is to possibly increase the earned income tax credit, but more importantly, you're going to have to make get find more decent paying jobs for people. Morgan? You know, I wrote in my column uh, this past issue that uh, nobody understands income inequality firsthand like journalists do. So, you know, this is not, this is a, a subject that is, is close to home, I think, for, you know, the the vast majority of New Yorkers. Part of the, the tale of two cities, or at least I think the criticism of Mayor Bloomberg, not to say that that is not absolutely valid in, in its portrayal of the city, was psychological because Mayor Bloomberg seemed aloof to the, the differences. He didn't acknowledge the fact that, that there was an affordability crisis in the city. Yeah, he was his own worst enemy on that. Right. And and so by, by seeing, seeming so tone deaf to it, uh, that he just set himself up so much to be the foil for that criticism that Bill de Blasio leveled against right. him during the campaign. Right. You, you got you got the former mayor who's in Bermuda playing golf right. as the snowstorm you know bears right. down upon New York City, and then you've got the new mayor who's shoveling outside of his place in Park Slope this morning. I, I'm sure that he was doing a lot of shoveling. That was not just for the cameras. <laughs> um, you know. Uh, yeah. And but I mean that there is so absolute, cynical imagery Morgan. matters. So cynical. Imagery that's, matters. that's what we talk about. That's, I, I, that's the basis for the show, polyoptics. <laughs> Please, your <laughs> listeners don't believe that for one second. Yeah, right. Um, you know, uh, but in in terms of the affordability crisis, I mean, you know, I the the rents in my neighborhood have have shot up exponentially. It's it's amazing that Brooklyn, you know, which was once considered like you, you would be you were exiled if you had to go live in Brooklyn, is now more expensive than Manhattan. Uh, and if you're looking for areas of the city that where there can be, uh, you know, a growth and affordability, I mean, they are they're quickly, uh, you know, falling to the wayside. I mean, every neighborhood is being gobbled up by by people who are looking for more affordable rents. And so, I mean, there, we the it has to lie in creating new units of affordable housing. You're not going to be able to undo what has been done. Right. Uh, the question is, can you incentivize that effectively? Uh, and, and, you know, there we have, I think you pointed out correctly, Jeff, that there have been strides to move away from this uh, kind of one node economy that was so heavily Wall Street focused and to diversify and, and to move into different areas. I mean, even things like manufacturing uh, in different capacities has, has boomed a lot in recent years and, and small businesses have, have taken root. And, uh, you know, but at, at the same time, you know, these there there is no such thing as there there used to be this you could be an artist and you could live in new york on an artist's living i mean that is a, as as confined to mythology as as anything in our past let's pause for one moment this is polyoptics jeff smith guest hosting for josh king this week we've got andrew white from the center for new york city affairs at the new school and morgan pem the editor in chief at city and state 
This is the only channel that takes you inside Washington, D.C. My message is simple. It's just not realistic. We're serious about growing our economy. Our economy. It's clear the president's policy. Is growing again. Not helping the economy. The economy. Bureaucracy. Monetary policy. Jobs. We'll be able to reduce our deficit. Fighting over power. It's starting to make a lot more sense. This is POTUS. The Press Pool with Julie Mason. Candy Crowley is anchor of CNN's State of the Union. You mentioned Libya. I, Anthony Bourdain's Libya visit on CNN was fantastic. I don't know if you saw it, Candy. Can I just tell you, he's on Sunday nights. Uh-huh. Sunday nights it, it starts for me at, at 6 p.m. because I'm up at 3 a.m. Sunday morning, so I am long gone before Anthony Bourdain. Political coverage through the eyes of beat reporters, columnists, bloggers, and some of the biggest names in Washington politics. Former Senator Olympia Snow, Republican of Maine. What was your thinking about that, leaving the Senate to be more effective? Well, I thought that I could use my voice to affirm what people's frustration and their deep-seated concerns about the direction of Congress and Washington in general about not grappling with with the big questions and, and the big issues facing this country. The Press Pool, hosted by veteran White House correspondent Julie Mason. Andrea Mitchell, the veteran NBC News chief foreign affairs correspondent. I do think Um, that we're in the silly season talking about 2016 this early. The Press Pool with Julie Mason. Weekdays starting at 3 p.m. East on POTUS, Sirius XM 124. Welcome back to Polyoptics This Week. I'm Jeff Smith sitting in for Josh King. And we've got with us Andrew White, director of the Center for New York City Affairs at the New School, and Morgan Penn, editor-in-chief at City and State magazine. So I think the, the New York Times, uh, New York Times reporter Andrea Elliott um, has done a five-part series that I, I think many of our listeners are probably familiar with called uh, Invisible Child, about a young girl named Dasani who um, lives in a shelter in, in Brooklyn. This uh, this series really, I think, put poverty in the city and in, into stark relief. Uh, Dasani was brought up on the stage during the inaugural by Tish James, the the uh, new public advocate, as a way to really dramatize the the plight of uh, of the people who've been left behind in in Bloomberg's New York. Andrew, you've kind of made your life's work in in many respects as a journalist and as a policy advocate. Uh, the safety net and uh, the some the occasional shredding of the safety net mm-hmm. at various junctures over the last 20 years that has caused the the type of uh, suffering that Dasani and her family have, have experienced in uh, the shelter. Can you talk a little bit about where you think de Blasio can move policy in this space? Yeah, I think the, the you know, the Bloomberg administration came in early on saying they were going to cut homelessness in half. They had a vision for developing affordable housing. They got down to the reality of it, and most of the affordable housing they were able to create was much more sort of middle-income housing. Um, They were not able to change the forces of the economy, which were just driving rents skyward, and I don't think they even tried on that score. What happened over the course of the last decade um, at the federal level was a reining in of Section 8 rent subsidies. So the local government tried to step in and created a short-term rent subsidy, uh, and it lasted for a time. It had problems when it ended. People, Some people ended up back in the shelters, but along 
about the time of the fiscal crisis and uh, Andrew Cuomo coming into office uh, as governor, the state took away its portion of that. The city ended its portion of that. And all of a sudden, the shelters exploded. We now have far more people in shelter than ever before, particularly families. And that's because there's nowhere to go and there's no more rent subsidies available for them and no place in public housing for them. So what de Blasio is going to have to do is go back to some of those old tried and true strategies. Um, He's talked about creating some kind of new local rent subsidy that would be supplemented with federal money through the state. It's all kind of complicated, but it's entirely doable. Um, there's other things they can do in even the shorter term. And it, it, I think they're going to dive in really quickly on that one. About 20,000 children. 22,000. 22,000 children in New York City yeah. uh, homeless, which, of course, as we talked about in uh, in the green room before we, we came on, makes it pretty damn hard for a kid to succeed at school. Yeah. I mean, if, if you look at the problems in the school system, I mean, it's another area that's gone through a lot of change over the last decade, including a big infusion of city money, but also a lot of controversy. But the schools that are struggling, most of the schools where kids are not having stability at home. I mean, housing stability is linked directly to success in school. And so when you have more and more kids who are living in unstable situations, not just in the shelters, but in double, tripled up apartments, that's a real problem for education. Um you know, people say we shouldn't be subsidizing poor people's lives. You look at the a lot of people were criticizing the family in the Dasani articles in the New York Times because it's a big family with parents who had been addicted to drugs. I mean, it's an extreme example. But the reality is half the kids in poverty in New York City are in families with a full-time worker. You know, one of the at least one adult in in half of these very poor families, families living in poverty, has a full-time job. These jobs just don't pay enough. How do we deal with that? That's a that's a problem that local government can begin to deal with. State government has a lot more clout over, and federal government has the most clout. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think that's an excellent point that Andrew is making. I mean, when when you talk about income inequality, it's not uh, just about it, this. Is generally a plight of working people, yeah. right? It's just you're putting in as many hours as you can and your income is just not adequate to sustain the high cost of living. Uh, And so, you know, this is not, you know, we're not talking about subsidizing people who who don't have jobs or or that this is not some massive, you know, social welfare giveaway. I mean, this is like, how can we, you know, make it that, how can you, how can you work for a living and, and not find yourself, you know, still out of luck? And that's that's really the fundamental problem with income inequality in the city. Andrew, you alluded to the controversy surrounding education during mm-hmm. the Bloomberg tenure. Let's delve into those for just a few minutes here. I know you've got at the Center for New York City Affairs, you guys run a website called Inside Schools, which is sort of an information clearinghouse, uh, probably a repository of more information about test scores and school quality and community involvement in schools, uh, a larger one than I think any other in the city right now. It is. Talk to us a little bit about uh, a couple couple of the primary reforms that Bloomberg, uh, Joel Klein in particular, began and what their results have been. So probably the two most important things that happened was a huge increase in salaries for teachers. And that happened early in the Bloomberg years, 30 to 40 percent increase in salaries that made a big difference. It made the schools in the city much more competitive with the suburbs. 
and um, kept talent in place, slowed turnover. So that was good. Uh, the more controversial things that happened um, were a lot of school closures. Um, and I guess the tying of those higher salaries to the perform to teacher performance. Right, and accountable. And well, although, yeah, I mean, ultimately it was a, a reformation of the system using accountability and and giving principals more control of their school but requiring that they achieve certain goals. And if they didn't achieve them, they could lose their job. If the school didn't improve, the school could be closed. I mean, ultimately, the number of school closures weren't wasn't that astronomical. In fact, what Bloomberg's m- sort of biggest strategy in the high schools wa- was was to shut down the great big schools and create a whole bunch of small schools. And and those have proven to be very effective when it comes to low income kids and and kids who are really struggling because there's an adult in every school and every in, there's an adult who knows every kid in each of these small schools and that makes a difference and i mean these were all, all these these reforms or these changes were an outgrowth of probably the largest fundamental change was which was mayoral control of schools right i right. mean we we threw out the old system of school boards uh where everything was really uh, regionalized and 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 you know the 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 power was uh you know uh dissipated and and we concentrated it all in in tweed uh and uh with with the mayor taking control of the schools that has also put the onus of education and uh, very squarely on the mayor, which will transform the the job of being the the educator in chief for for every mayor to come, as long as we have the system in place. Yeah, Morgan, you have a daughter, four years old, five year old, five year old. She just turned five. Okay, and I, I forgive you, Jeff. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> and public school, private school, and you know, kind of one of the challenges that you faced is you've tried to figure out her path. Uh, so my daughter is a public school student in in Brooklyn um, and in kindergarten. She I have seen firsthand the implementation of of the Common Core, which is you know one of the most hotly debated uh, issues in our state. Um, you know, and this this emphasis upon high stakes testing um, that's another uh, you know been a huge debate in our state uh, as it is really across the country i mean some of some of the fights that are are being are being played out you know are, are not just uh, uh you know endemic to to new york state but are you know reflections of larger educational policy across the country you know the manifestations of of race to the top and you know the then all the charter school battles and you know have been fashioned by the obama administration's policies towards education um, but, you know, I, I've you know, it's amazing with Common Core to see how uh, advocates from every single direction and I've I've moderated a lot of forums about education are generally uh, in support of the Common Core. There are certainly people who who despise it and want it to end immediately. But, you know, you see Michael Mulgrew from the UFT supports the Common Core. Meryl Tisch, the, the chancellor of the regions. She supports the Common Core. Uh, the the charter school advocates uh, support the Common Core. So there is some sort of common ground uh, in in you know in support of it. But at the same time, you know, I look at my daughter's homework and I see some of these instructions, and they are absolutely opaque to me. And these are this is homework for yeah. for uh, kindergarten students, <laughs> right? And and I went to a, a very well known private school in Manhattan. And uh, we didn't have homework, and I know that they still don't have homework until fourth grade, whereas my daughter in kindergarten is inundated with with homework. Uh, And and so, 
and and you read this homework and it reads like stereo instructions yeah and um, but, but, so you know but that's the crazy thing it's like so the common core is one thing setting standards higher you know who can be against you know setting standards higher so that everybody's pushing to do more the the, the real battleground now is the implementation and things like that things like you know throwing opaque homework at, at five-year-olds it's insane <laughs> yeah. i mean and it and the obsession with test scores is insane is insane too it's become it's gotten to a point where people are rebelling against it and, and i think one of the big problems with the bloomberg administration i think it's manifest is that they artificially inflated the test scores for political ends you know we right. for a long time we were dumbing down the tests so that the, the we could see rising test scores and then when there was this correction on that test the the scores plummeted. Now they they were far worse in most of the state than they were in in New York City. So maybe that's something that we can cheer about. Uh, but at the same time, when you put so much stock in test scores, right. you're creating this this political consequence around it, and and people only gauge the quality of their education predicated upon test scores. And so that that has been you know. Of course, you need to have accountability. Of course, you need to have standards. I mean, we're all educators. We believe in that, uh, you know, but we know the realities of how that pans out when you politicize education. Yeah. So one of the great things about the city schools now is the wealth of data that go well beyond test scores. They do these fantastic surveys of teachers and of kids every year, the learning environment survey that tell you all kinds of things about the quality of the school and the respect for the teachers and the teachers' attitudes towards the kids. So what we've done at Inside Schools is collect all of that stuff and give parents and students a much more nuanced view of each school. And I think de Blasio's talked about trying to change the school report cards to something that's much more geared towards the kind of thing we're doing, which is you know, you can look up, look at the breadth of the school through all this data. You don't have to just latch on to these one or two achievement scores as the measure of quality. So that's, you know, th- I think that's an area he can go in. I think the the move away from test scores is, is pretty clear in the choice of his chancellor, Carmen Farina. Um, the move towards supporting neighborhood schools, this is something that has not been on the the priority list for the Bloomberg administration. They've focused heavily on improving the high schools. And I think they did that. And they've raised graduation rates. It's a legitimate proof of some changes. They've raised standards and yet grad rates went up. But the elementary schools, there are so many really bad elementary schools in so many neighborhoods. That has to be a new focus. You've got to build on what's been achieved um, his choice of chancellor, de Blasio's choice of chancellor, indicates that that's the area he's going to be going. So another big difference between Bloomberg and de Blasio is their bank accounts. You know, yeah. a guy who's worth $30 billion versus a guy who he and his wife have both been basically career public servants. Bloomberg's wealth had outsized impact because it allowed him to sort of buy off groups all over the city whether it was, you know, Republican county parties that he could buy off early in his career to make sure he got the Republican line or, you know, community organizations that he could sort of, you know, make substantial contributions to to kind of make them quiescent around a certain development project Uh, or even, you know, major cultural institutions in the city for whom he was a leading donor. He was able to sort of buy a lot of silence, if you will, from people and groups who otherwise might have opposed certain policies. That's all gone now. 
there's no you know trust fund there's no you know billion dollars for de blasio to do yeah that. but it's not entirely gone i mean the city government controls many many it's something like seven billion dollars in contracts for health and human services that's a lot of money that comes out of government the, the giuliani administration was very good at preventing anybody from criticizing them if they wanted to keep their city money. In fact, the Koch administration did the same thing. So one of the tests of good government, I think, is whether the administration is willing to be open to criticism and not cut funding just because somebody says a a foul word about you. It'll be interesting to see what direction de Blasio goes on that. I think it's a fair point that you're making, uh, Jeff. I mean, the fact is, I mean, the Times did an article that they recently where they were estimating that I think that Bloomberg spent something like $670 million of his own money just to basically pay for the uh, the privilege of being the mayor and, and to have all the trappings that he wanted to have. But he did. Mayor. But he did take a salary of a dollar a year. Yeah. Well, and to be fair, his personal wealth went from four billion when he came into office to thirty-one billion, right. and um, you know that was one hell of a blind trust. Um, you know, but so you know, but he he was. It wasn't just a matter of about keeping people, you know, quiescent, but it was also the fact that he could he could subsidize his vision, right, and and that he could he could put his money where his mouth was. And, yeah. and I think that did make a huge difference. And that is something. I mean, there, there is a strong argument to be made that Bloomberg was the most powerful mayor in our history because, you know, he was one of the leading media moguls. He was the second wealthiest man and he was the mayor all wrapped up into one. Uh, and he could have an outsized impact because of that. I mean, Bill de Blasio is not going to be in a position to wield that much authority. So, you know, you can have the engine of the city behind you. But I mean, that that is it's going to be a paradigm shift. Yeah, I would say the real impact isn't so much the change from Bloomberg's ability to buy off community organizations. It, it's much more Bloomberg had the ear of the social elite in New York City in a way that de Blasio simply can't. I mean, because he's Bloomberg, not one of them. Bloomberg was a leader of these people, you know, <laughs> and those folks are a power in New York. And he did well by them, allowing massive development, really envisioning New York as the luxury city. That's, and helping their net worth increase absolutely. And in their real estate. And, and having, you know, a host of public-private partnerships. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's another right. controversial thing. But, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars came in from private entities to our parks you know, right. the the Central Park Conservancy, if you go to Central Park, it is immaculate. I, you know, I grew up, Central Park was, was, you know, in a pretty sorry state when I was growing up. Now it has $300 million to Central Park Conservancy. Couldn't be right. more extraordinary. And that that's not just in Central Park, to be fair. I mean, we have majestic parks all across Manhattan and outside in the outer boroughs, too, as a result of these public-private partnerships that... Bloomberg was able to to attract. Through yeah, and he was able to bring in philanthropic money to the Center for Economic Opportunity, which was the base of his poverty programs. Um, the Young Men's Initiative was largely funded by himself and Soros and some other donors. That kind of thing is going to be much harder for de Blasio to pull off. So let's fast forward. Final question here. Let's fast forward one year. What do you think we're saying about, about uh, Bill de Blasio's first year in office? Morgan. You know, I, I, as a, as a person who uh, is, I'm a lifelong New Yorker. I'm, I'm vested in the city. My family is vested in the city. You know, I, I hope that we are, 
are talking about, you know, extraordinary success uh, a year from now. Um, you know, we he he is he is capturing the zeitgeist, right? I mean, there's no question about it that that Tale of Two Cities is very real. And if he takes aim at it and is effective, then he will be addressing one of the core problems that our city faces. Um, and but it, it will be an, an immense challenge. I, I think that. Do you think the, he's up to know, it from a management perspective? Um, that remains to be seen. He's never been tasked with anything like this. I mean, the public advocate's office was all of like twenty-five dudes, you know, <laughs> and and like the uh, and before that, he was a city council member with like four uh, employees, right? And and so maybe the Hillary Clinton campaign was the biggest thing that he he's run, and and there's questions about to what degree he was at the helm there. So this is it's a complete, it, it, you know, it's it's we're we're going into the unknown. Right. Uh, and and we can we can be only, we can only be hopeful that we'll all work out for the best. So I have high hopes. Um, I think they can do a lot to build on what Bloomberg has done and to change direction in a few ways. I think it's really important to note that De Blasio's crew is basically of the same ilk as the people who've been working in government for a long time. He's been in government for a long time. A lot of the people around him have been in the Bloomberg administration or in prior administrations. These are solid people. They've got a vision that's going to be difficult because addressing poverty is no easy thing. So what I'm hoping to see a year from now is the beginnings of a strategy that can harness growth in New York without squelching growth. You know, how do you allow growth to continue and allow development to continue and continue to grow the tax base of the city, but harness more of it to address things like inequality. And, and and I just want to say one last thing. I think that contrary to the the, the adversarial nature or, the, or rhetoric of the campaign, I think you're going to see a lot of things stay the same too. Uh, I think in a lot of departments that are actually chugging along fine, that De Blasio is going to kind of further the the Bloomberg approach, even though he'll never want to give Bloomberg the credit for doing so. He might come down. You know, a year or two from now, it's not going to be as political to as politicized to, to be attacking Bloomberg. You got to remember four years ago when Bloomberg pulled off the third term, uh, five years ago when he got the change in the law, he was riding high. He had very high approval ratings. Even two years ago when Chris Quinn decided that she was going to latch herself to the sort of Bloomberg train in order to get elected, Bloomberg's approval rating was up near 60 percent or higher. So she thought that was the way to go. It's only in the last year and a half that that his popularity tanked. Well, listen, we have been pretty blessed this week to have two of New York's savviest political observers here with us. Andrew White, director of the Center for New York City Affairs at the New School. Morgan Pem, the editor-in-chief of City and State. Thank you both so much for all of your insight. Really appreciate you joining us this week. I'm Jeff Smith professor of urban policy at the New School and former Missouri State Senator filling in for Josh King this week on Polyoptics. Josh will be back with us next week. Until then, have a great 2014 and take care. Bye-bye.